Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. You, too, may be a naturalist, as we find out in this interview with Deborah Edelman, holder of a master's degree in ecology from the University of California, and Adina Marinlander, holder of a doctorate in biology and a University of California Cooperative Extension Specialist. Together, along with Greg Denevers, they wrote the California Naturalist Handbook, an easy-to-follow guide, as well as a text for anyone with interest in nature. Deborah Edelman and Adina Marinlander visited the studios of Radio Curious on May 17, 2013, and we began our conversation with Adina's description of what a naturalist does. study the natural world. They're interested in nature and um, in the broadest sense. Uh, So when you think about naturalists in the past, some of the great naturalists like Charles Darwin, who observed nature in great detail, and through his observations and through his note-taking, he actually uh, came up with the whole theory of evolution and changed entirely our understanding of the natural world. And how it came to be. Another person that comes to mind is John Muir, who observed nature in detail, wrote about it, and also his observations and his increased understanding of nature made him value it. And through valuing it, he worked hard to conserve it and help start the national parks. The breadth of information that naturalists are interested in presented some challenges to develop a single book for naturalists in California because we had to cover everything from geology and all the physical sciences of nature that make nature work into ecology, all about animals, all about plants. And then, of course, naturalists are motivated to do something, so environmental issues. What would be the orientation that you would suggest for a, an observer to have when looking at the natural world? In the book, I think we take the approach of offering some guidance on the most classical techniques used by the early naturalists, like the Grinnell method of field notebook and taking notes in the field and uh, journaling, all the way up to uh, technology and iNaturalist and doing things in your cell phone. What is the Grinnell method? How does it work? Deborah? So the Grinnell method is a way of recording observations in a field notebook. It's a format for putting the date and your name and where you are, what species you're seeing, uh, the route you took to where you're going. Um, It enables you and maybe future generations to have a really clear record of what it is you've seen and what you experienced. It's a really great format, and we encourage people to follow it. But at the same time, um, it's the kind of thing that can be modified for individual preference. What someone experiences is very unique, and the way someone develops a field notebook will be unique. Some people have lots of drawings. Some people don't. All these methods work. The advantage of something like having the Grinnell method as a reference is it ensures that you will record some really basic information that might be easy to overlook if you're not thinking about it. Well, let's talk about what citizen science is and how anybody anywhere can participate. 
Some people also refer to citizen science as public participatory research. And the reason is that not everybody who participates is actually has to be a citizen. <laughs> so I think that's an important point to make. Uh, however, we do refer to it as citizen science, and it is uh, a way uh, for the public to participate in science. And the example that's often referred to is invasive species. In here in California, we have many annual grasses that have been introduced from Europe. And one of the things is that they really do well with additional nitrogen in the system. In general, there wasn't a lot of nitrogen in the soils naturally in California. And we, uh, through mostly pollution, uh, exhaust from automobiles and other sources of pollutants, um, as well as agricultural application of nitrogen, have increased the availability of nitrogen. This has benefited the invasive annual grasses uh, to the detriment of some of our native plants. And one of the things that citizen scientists do so well is they can document the spread of these invasions. And if we impose some kind of control on invasives, maybe we run a control burn or do a mowing treatment, the citizen scientists can come in and say, you know, we regularly monitor, we may live on this land, near, live nearby this land, and we can go regularly and check to see how well did the control treatment work, where are the invasions going. Um, it's just a Invasions are very difficult to track, and just having a couple scientists out there and even using remote sensing can be difficult. So having citizen scientists looking at the spread of invasive species is very effective and very helpful. Can you give us an example of what an invasive species would be, and what do they do? And why is what they do deemed to be detrimental? Well, it is a controversial subject because species have their own place on Earth and in the world. When we think about things that are invasive, they are non-native. In other words, they did not evolve in, in the location that we're finding them. And also, they tend to invade well, be very successful, and often take over a site. Okay. So if we look at something like the barbed goat grass, which is uh, similar to wheat and has been invading our California grasslands, um, it's not from here, and it's doing very well. It's invading. It's very successful, and it's outcompeting some of our native grasses. In fact, it's invading our serpentine soils, which are thought to be the places of refugia where our native species can still exist and outcompete these invasive species. So we get these aggressive invaders, and they can compete with our native flora, or in, we can have invasive animals that compete with our native fauna, and they can lead to extinction and often do lead to extinction. And, of course, we have a moral and ethical responsibility to prevent extinction. So we need to think about, in, we need to control invasives in some cases because of the consequences they have uh, for native species. And also we're noticing an increase in homogenization of ecosystems, the loss of diversity, and things are and the rate of homogenization is increasing in time. So I talked about global change. We've always had global change. It's changing faster than ever now. And we've had homogenization. Things are getting homogenized even faster now. Deborah and Adina, when we talk about the species invading and claiming or diminishing other species, 
I don't think that we can ignore the human beings that did not evolve in the Western Hemisphere, but came here, as we have discussed in other editions of Radio Curious, to the detriment of the species that did evolve here. How do we balance that? Well, that's a big question. (laughs) Um, And the perspective that I think about is the fact that um, humans have been in California for many thousands of years. And for many thousands of years, humans lived more or less in harmony with nature. The um, native people who lived here were able to manage the land in a way that promoted their own well-being, but didn't uh, diminish the diversity and the capacity of the land to sustain itself. Um, That's in contrast to the way things are now, where uh, resources are being used and land and air are being polluted at rates that the natural systems cannot absorb or adjust from. It's just happening so quickly. There's so many people um, and there's so much technology and it's leading to the kinds of things Adina was just talking about. Exotic species invasions, species decline, air pollution, water pollution, um, things that come back and hurt us. Adina, your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. My thought, not that I agree with what I'm about to say, is that could that not be interpreted as part of the evolution in the bigger sense of our Earth? I think we're going to have to work very, very hard to sustain our ecosystems right now. We have impacted them, yes, beyond our ability to return. Um, We're going to have to make some very conscious management decisions um, in order for our own species to survive. Man does have the moral and ethical responsibility to protect other species as well as his own. It goes beyond just what those species can do for man, for me. It has to do with their own inalienable right to exist and our obligation not to drive those other species to extinction uh, because of the importance of our own benefit. Deborah? And I would just add that you said, could this be the next step in the evolution? And I wouldn't necessarily use the word evolution, but it's important to remember that species have lifespans, and then they sometimes cease to exist. And we have to be aware that we could extinguish ourselves if we're not careful. In your book, you mentioned things that, that we can do as individuals. What are some of them? Well, in each chapter, or many of the chapters, we have sidebars that outline basic things that people can do. Um, None of them are particularly revolutionary, and they're probably things you've heard before. But for example, we have six ways you can prevent water pollution, like never throwing anything down storm drains, avoiding the use of chemical herbicides, fertilizers, and insecticides, Um, disposing properly of household hazardous wastes. Um, Again, none of these are things that are particularly new, but they make a difference because there's 7 billion of us on the planet and what every individual does does have an impact. That being said, I do, um, the authors definitely recognize that individual actions alone are excellent, but we also need political change. We need regulation or incentives so that um, are the systems we all live with 
are also helping enhance the environment and not destroy it. Because as individuals, we can only do so much. As individuals, there's so much we can do. But then there's lobbying the government. Well, that was one of my dreams about the California Naturalist Program. The book was motivated by the fact we wanted to offer a a whole program about teaching about natural history. And that's the program that I'm interested in you describing. Right. And the program is uh, at least 40 hours of training using the book, but as equally important experiential learning, going outside, working with people who are knowledgeable about different areas that we cover in the book, from geology, watersheds, and animals and plants and environmental issues. Um, Doing a project focused in these areas. As an example of a project would be? For instance, developing a geology driving tour for people to take in your community that points out the geological features of the landscape. I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Deborah Edelman and Adina Marinlander, co-authors along with Greg Denevers of the California Naturalist Handbook, a handbook that explains the grand diversity of the state of California that has the highest and lowest points in North America, as well as perhaps the greatest number of diverse species in North America. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What prompted you and your colleagues to write the California Naturalist Handbook? Adina? I got this idea from my colleagues who brought to my attention that there were naturalist programs in other states, Georgia, Florida, Texas. And I quickly realized there are many, many advantages to starting a naturalist program, a training program, as well as developing a a network of naturalists who are interconnected. In part, in these other states where these naturalist programs are very active, uh, it's easy to document the wonderful things that naturalists do. They work in outdoor children's education programs. They're docents and they do interpretation in museums and gardens. They restore the environment, work in wetland restoration, river restoration. And of course, if you're an organized network, you can quantify the benefits of those activities and argue to decision makers and funders that the natural world requires more, deserves more support, more attention, because look, all these people care. All these people spend time on behalf of nature. So you can end up with more support for the things we really care about. In the relatively short life of the courses for which the California Naturalist Handbook is, is the text, are there any successes Definitely. One of the things we've been impressed with is the capstone projects that the participants do. And they really take it upon themselves to uh, build a scientific curriculum for children in K-12 through programs. But there do seem to be a lot of interest among the public in uh, taking a class, as well as among our high-quality institutions like museum gardens in giving the program. So we hope we'll grow and uh, continue to build not only uh, more educated citizenry in the natural sciences, uh, but also to produce products from the courses that will be used uh, with schools and other uh, public groups. How would you characterize the contribution or the impact of citizen scientists on the world of natural science? 
Yeah, it's an exciting time now because we're starting to quantify that. And if we take an example of an institution like Cornell's Ornithology Lab that's been doing citizen science since the early 1960s, they now have over 200,000 people contributing to their bird databases online. That results in tens of thousands of data points every day on birds. And it's through that brain trust, through that huge a cloud source database that scientists can take advantage of that data. They're learning about trends in the way birds and bird migrations are changing. They're learning about bird diseases. They're learning about the changes in distributions of individual species. So a lot of science has actually been done on this treasure trove of data. More recently, just in March of this year, uh, was published in, uh, reviewed a publication in Science Magazine that pointed out this uh, that s- hobbyists who are scuba divers and belong to an organization called Reef have been out collecting over 160,000 dives, recording tropical fish on behalf of science. And some scientists took it upon themselves to examine whether there was a difference between what the citizen scientists, the quality of data that the citizen scientists were collecting, as compared to the quality of their own data. And they had the citizen scientists perform the data collection using the same methods as the scientists did. And in fact, the citizen scientists, these citizen divers, off Turks and Caicos Islands in the Caribbean Sea, ended up counting more species than the scientists themselves in the same study areas. Citizen naturalists are very good at collecting natural history data, at collecting biodiversity data, and scientists are increasingly appreciating that. With global climate change, all this rapid change, you need data on large geographic distributions and you know, that span a huge amounts of area to detect impacts of these global changes. And only through citizen science can we do that. I mean, imagine how much it would cost to have scientists go out and do 160,000 dives, whereas this data came to them free from volunteers, and it's an excellent source of information. Another important motivator for me in starting the naturalist program was to develop a constituency that would connect back to the university, to the academy, um, so that the, they would better appreciate our departments of mammalogy, ornithology, people who are studying the ology scientists, sciences, as well as our museums and gardens. Uh, so my hope is that we're going to develop this statewide network and that those folks who rely on the information uh, that the universities and gardens and museums provide will then fight harder to maintain and support those or those institutions and that that may have some long-term impact in sustaining um, the type of science that I think is important about the natural world. For people listening anywhere, what would you suggest as some generic words that could be used to index or search for a local resource? Deborah? Well, I would start with um, searching to see if your state has a master naturalist program. Our program, the California Naturalist Program, of which the book is the textbook, was modeled on a similar program that is in, I believe, 26 other states. So there's at least a 50% chance that your state has a master naturalist program that you could participate in. And it has a similar format of um, a class series, um, learning about your local natural history and ecology. 
Adina? The field is growing, which is great. And it's interesting because... Uh, the number of citizen science programs is proliferated. We have a database where you can search keywords in our California Naturalist website. You can just Google California Naturalist, get to our website, and there's a database of citizen science projects for those in California. But these also exist um, on the internet, and there are more citizen science projects than ever before. And that's a great way to engage in improving your natural history skill set. Um, so, Adina... The phrase citizen science Mm -hmm. is a search point. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, One thing I wanted to say is it's interesting that the interest in natural history is vast. In fact, we think that our audience is somewhat insatiable in their uh, desire for knowledge about the natural world. At that same time, we continue to defund the science that those citizen scientists rely on. We have really, at the academic level, given up on the ologies. Uh, people have uh, removed their, they've focused on technology as the solution to the future for our children um, and for ourselves, um, and uh, not emphasized and actually de emphasized zoology, um, ornithology, geology, the basis of our understanding of how the, wor- the earth works and how our systems work, um, at a time that we are um, sort of writing those systems off. And Deborah had a great example in class the other night where she said someone had commented on the fact that we've exceeded 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and had wished in his online comment that there was a machine that would suck out the carbon from the atmosphere and put it down into the earth. And Deborah remarked in glass, we have that machine. It's called the tree. <laughs> as so, you know, as we write off our ologies, and yet people want to return to nature, want an understanding, want to learn more, Um, But our institutions, our academic institutions, and our whole thrust of our society right now is let's learn more about technology and let's not foster and hire ornithologists anymore. And that's a real shame. And we're going to need these citizen scientists. They are our ologists of today. Deborah, I'm just going to come back to the search terms because I thought of a few more. Many people live within easy travel distance to a nature center or a natural history museum. So that's another thing to search for in your area is you could just do a search for name of your town and then natural history museum or nature center or um, any number of other uh, educational institutions that might be close by that provide tours, um, classes, Many uh, Audubon Society chapters have classes. There's many native plant societies in California. There's a very active California Native Plant Society. You could search for that as well. All of these organizations have educational components. And I just want to add that one of the great things about taking a class or getting involved in a an, an organization is there's the social component, which is that you get to meet other people who like to be outdoors, who like to you know, observe birds or whatever it is that interests you. And right now we are in Ukiah teaching one of a course series of the California Naturalist. 
And one of the really nice things about it is the cohesion that's developed among the participants. It's a pretty big group, but nonetheless, it's really fun to get together. And I think that's part of what keeps people coming back. One of our participants said she'd found her litter mates. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Deborah Edelman and Adina Marinlander, I want to thank you both for being with us on Radio Curious. And as you know, I have three questions. It is more about you that I'd like to ask each of you to conclude the program. And perhaps we could begin with you, uh, Deborah. Okay. Uh, About a eureka or an aha moment that's changed your life. When I was in my 20s, I spent a summer working on the uh, backcountry revegetation crew at Olympic National Park. And I really had not done much backpacking. I wasn't prepared. I had all the wrong equipment. I had (laughs) the worst shoes in the world. And after two weeks in the backcountry, I was totally sore and felt terrible and <laughs> was wondering why I did this. And then a little bit later, I found I really wanted to go back because it had been a wonderful experience. And that was an aha moment for me that despite the fact that I got cold at night and had sore feet, I couldn't wait to get back in the mountains because it was so beautiful. And we had been doing really interesting um, data collection and I wanted more. And what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? (laughs) That's a hard question to answer. I really enjoy the education process. I really enjoy seeing people's eyes light up when they get a chance to learn about the natural environment. I like that with both kids and adults, and I'd like to continue to be part of environmental education. And finally, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? The Story of Stuff, uh, it's just a really nice examination of the consumption system. And Adina Marinlander, a eureka or an aha moment in your life? Definitely. When I was 15, I went on Opan, which is sort of a working summer trip to Israel. And there I worked on a farm, and but probably more importantly, interacted with people who really wanted to change the world. And we started Save the World Club, and I haven't stopped yet. <laughs> Maybe that leads on to what you would like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life. I think I'd like to continue to maintain a warm and close family and warm community, because I think personally that's very rewarding. Um, and I guess continuing on as, as the Lorax um, in saying, I speak for the trees, which goes back to this strong feeling I have about Uh, that we should not be responsible for the extinction of other species. And finally, Adina, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, when we're talking about ecology, I do want to recommend The Song of the Dodo by David Quammen, a book about island biogeography. For those who are thinking about climate change, I still think one of the best books in that area is The Weathermakers by Tim Flannery. Adina Marinlander and Deborah Edelman, thank you both very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. It was a delight. Deborah Edelman and Adina Marinlander, together with Greg Denevers, are the authors of the California Naturalist Handbook. A direct link to the California Naturalist Handbook is found on Google. The books Deborah Edelman recommends are The Story of Stuff, The Impact of Overconsumption on the Planet by Annie Leonard, 
The books Adina Marinlander recommends are The Song of the Dodo, Island Biogeography in an Age of Extinction by David Quammen, and The Weathermakers by Tim Flannery. This program was recorded in the studios of Radio Curious on May 17, 2013. Over 400 Radio Curious programs may be found on our website, radiocurious.org. They're free as my gift to you. I hope you enjoy them. Our address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. The phone is 707-462-6541, and email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.